0: like greta garbo or stick his nose in a paper to avoid conversation on this second monday of january after sleeping his usual seven hours he woke up in his king size four poster canopy bed with a blue calico spread outside his window the skies were overcast and it was sprinkling when the weather was gray and drizzly he felt reassured that life would go on forever Sunny days made him want to hide under the covers and think of dying. A creature of habit, he seldom varied his early morning routine of treadmill and shower, followed by having his regular breakfast of prune juice and Cheerios with raisins and sliced bananas, as he read the New York Times. An article reported that he had attended a cocktail party on Friday night after a private screening of a picture produced by his best friend and that he sipped a lovely pavillon blanc de Chateau Margot 1986. After finishing the times, he practiced his clarinet for an hour and then departed for his editing office. Ordinarily, he breezed around the city in his black Mercedes sedan, or a rattling old station wagon, with his driver Don Harris behind the wheel. However, he preferred walking the thirteen blocks to his office at 575 Park Avenue, usually following the same route. At the intersection of 74th Street and Madison Avenue, he headed south past Clyde Chemists, which delivers prescriptions to the luxury buildings on Fifth Avenue, past Ralph Lauren's flagship store where he had shot scenes for Alice, notably the one in which an invisible Joe Mantegna sneaks into a changing booth with supermodel Elle McPherson, past the plush polo restaurant in the Westbury Hotel A block of cherry-red awnings, where you could spend sixteen dollars on a half-portion of fettuccine with fresh crepes, Swiss chard, and mushroom cream. And finally, into the valley of the couture ghetto, the houses of Gianni Versace, Giorgio Armani, Valentino, before turning east to Park Avenue. This morning, he was working on a new picture with his editor, Sandy Morse, who had been with him for fourteen movies. At present, the movie's working title was Woody Allen Full Project 91, but eventually it would be called Husbands and Wives. Over the years, constant experimentation had enabled him to devise an efficient method of working. He shot scenes in one or two setups, dispensed with close-ups, and worked only in master shots, eliminated actors' rehearsals and allowed them to change dialogue, and seldom offered direction. "'all shortcuts allowing him to finish a picture before he got sick to death of it. "'This time the use of handheld camera techniques "'and long takes running up to nine minutes "'permitted an even hastier shoot than usual. "'It was crude, off-the-cuff filmmaking "'that in the hands of a less confident artist could have spelled amateur, "'but for him it meant principal photography could be completed ahead of schedule. "'With every picture he started out with a strong idea.' Unfortunately, however hard he tried, the original idea, gradually diluted along the way, never made it to the screen exactly as planned. Personally, he often said he didn't care one way or the other what people thought of his films, just as he never saw his pictures after release and never read reviews. More and more as he grew older, he thought of his work as self therapy, a means, he said, of keeping busy, so I don't get depressed. But even before the reshoots, he felt good about Woody Allen Fall Project 91, which was coming in under budget. Already in the pipeline was his next project, his twenty-third film, a murder mystery in which he would play an amateur detective. Shooting would begin in September. Midway through the day, an assistant ordered takeout for him. It was his regular lunch, the same type of sandwich that he had eaten for the last forty-five years. Tuna salad— or occasionally turkey for a change, no lettuce, no tomato, on healthful white bread, followed by a Nestle Crunch Bar or chocolate cake and coffee. On a typical winter evening after leaving his office, he could be found at Madison Square Garden, watching the New York Knicks from his courtside seats behind the scorer's table. On Monday nights he would head to his weekly concert at Michael's Pub on East 55th Street, where he had been playing New Orleans jazz for more than two decades. Afterward, he would go home, get a bite to eat, usually chocolate chip cookies washed down with two glasses of milk, and go to bed. All things considered, there was much for Woody Allen to feel pleased about. In recent months, he had earned $2 million for a series of TV commercials promoting Italy's biggest supermarket chain— And in the bookstores, an adoring new biography solidified the popular myths about himself and his beloved leading lady, the golden-haired waif with the Dresden complexion and chiseled cheekbones. Mid afternoon, Mia Farrow and her four-year-old son Satchel, who was also Woody's son, stepped off the elevator into the foyer of Woody's penthouse. The actress reached under the umbrella stand for the key. In backgrounds. Maria de Lourdes Villiers-Farrow and Alan Stewart Konigsberg could not have been more dissimilar. A Hollywood blue blood and a flat bush frog turned movie prince. But they had been together for a dozen years, working side by side in thirteen films. As the quintessential Hollywood couple of the eighties, the new Tracy and Hepburn, Woody and Mia were truly an unusual pair, even for movie stars. They were not married— they did not even live together. Mia had nine children, three biological with her former husband, the prominent conductor Andre Previn, five adopted, and one satchel whom Woody and Mia had together. Because the commotion made by so many youngsters jangled Woody's nerves, Mia had remained on the opposite side of the park, in her eight-room home at 135 Central Park West, the apartment in the Langham where Woody had filmed the Thanksgiving scenes in Hannah and her sisters. On a clear day, according to local Mia-Woody folklore, the lovers could gaze at each other across the expanse of Central Park through binoculars and wave towels. Several weeks earlier, Woody had co-adopted two of Mia's five adopted children, Korean-born Moses, thirteen, and six-year-old Dylan. While he doted on Dylan— Woody never managed to form a strong bond with his own little boy. Whether for this reason or not, Satchel O'Sullivan Farrell had began experiencing emotional difficulties. When playing dress-up, for example, he didn't care to act the prince and instead always pleaded for the part of Cinderella. His father considered his son wanting to play Cinderella a problem, and so Satchel began therapy with a clinical psychologist in June of 1990 at which time he was only two years and seven months old. Instead of consulting Dr. Susan Coates at her office, Satch had his sessions at his father's apartment. It would not do for word to leak out that Woody's little boy, hardly more than a baby, who was until recently breastfeeding, was so screwed up that he required a shrink. For the hour Satch was closeted with the gender specialist, his mother waited in the den. In the room where she settled into a chair, there were floor-to-ceiling bookshelves and a comfortable desk, although Woody did his writing with pencil and legal pad upstairs on his bed. The coffee table was always cluttered. He subscribed to National Geographic, the New York Review of Books, the New Republic, and there were piles of books as well as bowls of nuts and fancy candies. To pass the time, Mia thumbed through The Crooked Timber of Humanity by Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher who is Woody's favorite essayist. When the telephone rang, she answered, knowing that it would be Woody. The previous evening, as on other Sunday nights, they had spent together in her kitchen eating a meal of takeout Chinese with the kids. But there was always news to exchange, and so they spoke on the telephone four or five times a day. After hanging up, she stepped over to the fireplace where she reached for a box of tissues on the mantle. Under the box, a stack of Polaroid photos caught her eye. They showed a naked woman draped across a sofa, posing suggestively with her legs spread apart, and Mia stared at the pictures in shock and horror. As she wrote in her autobiography, What Falls Away, it took me a moment to realize that it was Suni, her nineteen-year-old daughter, who, to her knowledge, lacked any sexual experience, who had never had a date, not so much as a phone call from a boy. Within minutes she was dialing Woody's office. I found the pictures, she screamed. Get away from us! Then she phoned her daughter, who hung up on her. Totally traumatized, she felt as if a stake had been hammered through her heart. Shortly thereafter, she was seen tearing through the lobby with her son in tow. Her flushed face and rumpled clothing did not seem extraordinary to Woody's neighbors at 9.35.